Father, I thank you for the Trinity. I thank you that you've given the Son uh, to be our friend, to be our Savior, to be our Redeemer. I thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit who indwells within and is one that helps reveal the deep things of the Godhead to us. And I thank you, Father, that you are the sovereign one who, uh, who reigns over all and even assures our salvation and final salvation and eternity someday. God, I pray that as we are now in waiting mode here on planet Earth and as we gather to worship here today and as we open your book, the very words of Jesus, would you speak to us? Would you, uh, by the power of your spirit, illumine our hearts and minds so that we might understand what your son has said to us, even in this all-important topic of hate that is so prominent in the world today. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So here is what might shock us when it comes to Jesus and hate, and that is that most people associate Jesus with love as they should, because as you guys know, Jesus talked an awful lot about love, but what many people might not know is that Jesus also talked quite a bit about hate. It's true. The word hate appears about 40 times in the New Testament. That's actually quite often. That's about one and a half times per book in the New Testament. And the reason that that's important to know is that of all the 40 occurrences of hate in the New Testament, Jesus takes up about 25 of them. So two-thirds of the occurrences of the word hate are used up by Jesus in the New Testament. And he talks about hate from all different angles. He talks about family hate. He talks about cultural hate. He talks about personal hate. In fact, in the four gospels, save for Mark, in each of the four gospels, Jesus talks about hate on anywhere from four to six occasions. It was not a subject that he shied away from. And the highest concentration of the word hate occurs in the next section of John 15 that we're going to look at today. That's important for you to know. In the section we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to use the word hate seven times. That's over one quarter of the uses of the word hate by Jesus just concentrated in these few verses. And so Jesus is clearly trying to make a point uh, to us. Let's read together what he says. Follow along as I read the next section in John 15, verses 18 to 25. Jesus is speaking, and he says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this... The world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. 
So obviously the themes here are very clear. The word hate is mentioned seven times, as I mentioned, and the word world, I don't know if you've caught this, is mentioned six times with a lot of stuff in between. And what you don't want to miss, gang, is that there's a correlation between the two. When you see a word repeated this many times, hate, and then a word repeated this many times, world, Jesus is trying to tell us something. He is telling the disciples, and this extends to you and me as we are followers of Jesus, that there will be a level of hatred come our way from the world at times as we faithfully follow Jesus. Let's make sure we're clear on the terms that are before us this morning. I want you to focus just for a minute, Cactus, Venue, and Chapel, focus just for a minute on those two words, hate and world. And let's understand each in their context here. Hate is the Greek word miseo, and in the Greco-Roman culture back then, when Jesus used this word, the disciples would have understood this, because here was their definition of hate back then, to feel an aversion toward, to dislike intensely. What's fascinating is that 2,000 years later, if you then look in Webster's Dictionary as to how they define hate in our modern English culture, it's very similar. Webster says hate is to uh, hate or is intense hostility and aversion, extreme dislike. So very similar definitions 2,000 years ago and today. And here's my simple point before we move on. All of us are familiar with the feeling of hate. Amen? All of us. I don't think there's one person here today or online or at other campuses and venues that hasn't experienced what it's like to have an aversion towards something, to dislike something intensely. And here's the deal, though it's somewhat benign when we use the word hate in light of things, like when we say that we hate sushi or cold climates or cats or something like that, it, it's a whole nother thing, and you all know this, when you use the word in light of people, amen? So it's fine to hate certain things, that's benign. But as soon as you attach this word to people, it becomes an incendiary word. And yet that's precisely what Jesus does here. He says there will be people, the world, that will hate you and me as followers of Jesus. They will have an aversion toward us, an intense dislike because of certain things that we'll look at in a minute. Let's clarify what Jesus means by the world here. Fascinating word in the Greek. Uh, the Greek word for world here is the Greek word cosmos, where we get the English word cosmos from. So you should understand that one, right? And what is the cosmos? It's, it's, it's everything. It's the whole kit and caboodle. Now, what, what we have to understand though is whenever they use the word cosmos in the New Testament, it many times refers to a subset of the cosmos. And that's what's happening here in John 15. Jesus is saying that, that, that the world is referring to anybody who is not a believer in and follower of him. So he's making a distinction here, don't miss this, between the world, the cosmos, and his disciples. But the word cosmos means anybody that's not a disciple. And the reason that's important is that those are the ones who potentially are going to have some hatred toward him, and as you'll see by extension, us. We're going to move on here in just a second. Jesus says that there will be times of significant friction 
aversion toward, intense dislike between the people of this world and Jesus' followers. And how Jesus lays out this scenario, I would submit to you as both rich and instructive. I want to show you how he lays this out in kind of a chart format because it really is truly rich. And I put it in your outline so that you can take it home with you. But let me draw it on the board here as well so that we can see it in black and white. Obviously, these verses here are all centered around Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the one speaking. He's referring to himself and the hatred that comes his way. But what's fascinating of what Jesus does here is that he very quickly attaches himself to his father. In fact, he makes a very clear tie to the father when he says in verse 21 that the father is the one who sent me and and hence, if they hate me, then by extension, they're hating him. So he very quickly makes a tie to the Father and even to the Trinity. But then, fascinating, he does the same thing with his followers. He makes a tie to them as well. In in verse 20, he says, a slave is not greater than his master. So obviously, we're the slaves or servants there. Jesus is a master. And he's saying, if they hate the master, they're not going to like the servants. And so just simply notice that he's making a tie to the father. He's making a tie to his followers. And he's saying that if hate comes his way at all, it's going to extend up and it's going to extend down very quickly. And then what Jesus does, and this is really fascinating for me, is that he gives us two reasons why the world is going to hate him. And this is going to be very instructive for you and me today. The first reason that Jesus tells us of why the world hates him is because of what he has said. Because of what he has said. In verse 22 there, I read it for you earlier, he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, then they would have not had the sin of rejecting me. But now that I have spoken to them, their sin is very clear. And so Jesus is telling us, just pause there for a second, that the reason that people hate him and why they might just hate us, this aversion, this intense dislike, (laughs) is because of what he said. Now, if you're tracking with me, the obvious question becomes, what in the world could he have said that would cause this intense dislike? I mean, what is it that he said 2,000 years ago that's still playing out today in your life and mine as we're trying to eke out an existence in 21st century culture that, that people might have a problem with? And let me just give you a sampling of passages that over the years I've noticed people have had problems with. Every one of these is a direct quote from Jesus. Let's start really easy. John 3.16 He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is one of the Christian's favorite verses. We quote it all the time. But do you understand that if you don't believe this, that it's not good news for you? Give me a head nod. Do you understand that? Because anybody that doesn't believe this goes, whoa, 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 wait a second. Gave his only son so that they shall not perish 
perish, where would I perish to? Well, there's this place called hell, you know, and it's not a good place, and da, 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 you know, and, and before you know it, that doesn't sound very good to those that, that don't believe this stuff. And, and back then, there was an entire set of religious leaders that when they heard Jesus just say this, what did they do? They started to pick up stones, and they wanted to kill him because they did not like these words from him. It actually gets worse when people ask the question, you know, why would we perish? Why would we need Jesus to come and save us? Look at what he says in John 8, uh, verse 23. He's, re- he's talking to the, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jews, but it extends to you and I. This is really words to all of humanity. He says, you are from below. Pause right there. That's not a good place. You are from below. He says, I am from above. That is a good place. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. So again, Jesus, please see this, is drawing a line in the sand here. Have you ever felt him do that in your life? And he's drawing this line in the sand, and he's essentially saying that all of humanity is now from below, because from birth, they've gone their own way. From birth, they are separated from my father who made them and loves them. And they are now from below, they are of this world and they need to be saved. They need their sins forgiven. They need to find salvation. And I'm the one who came to bring that to them. Look at how he then goes on to say it in John 14. Many of you know this passage. I am the way, Jesus is speaking, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Whoa. I mean, again, these are incendiary words. If you believe them, the Bible calls this good news, great news. But, but think about it if you don't believe it. <laughs> think about if this stuff is stuff you just don't buy into. It's now in your face. The, the line is being drawn. These are, these are things that, that the world has trouble with. And then the question came to Jesus, and people still ask it today, who are you to say all this stuff? I mean, you know, that you're God's only son and that you're from above, you're not like us from the world and, and, and that we need to be saved. I mean, and you're the only way. Who are you to say that? And Jesus goes, glad you asked. Look at John chapter 8, 58. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. If you know anything about the Old Testament, Abraham lived about 1,500 years before Jesus He was the patriarch of the Old Testament, the founder of the nation Israel, the most esteemed of all Jewish leaders. And Jesus is saying, before Abraham was even born, I existed. He's claiming pre-existence here. He's claiming to be God come in the flesh as God's son. Just simply see, because we're going to move on here in a minute. The things that Jesus said, though you and I gather every week and, and worship him and love him and take great joy in it, in these things, if, if you don't believe them, they can get in your way. And just so we include Scottsdale people here, look at what Jesus once said in Matthew 19, verse 24. He said, again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I don't hear too many people in Scottsdale quote that verse. How about you? <laughs> and, and you know the reason why? is because most rich people just gloss over that one and and they have no idea how to make sense of it. Let me help you right now because I'm not going to take any edge off of what Jesus said. He's meaning it here. This is true stuff. What he's simply saying is that if you're in the top 10% of the nation's wealth, which by the way is about every one of us, your comfort is now secure. You don't worry too much about material things, even though you want more things. That's another sermon, but you don't have to worry about them. 
And because of that, it's very tempting to sort of settle into life and think that you're just fine and things are okay. It's kind of the Scottsdale mentality. And is it then any coincidence that only 17% of people in our city go to church on any given Sunday? Because we don't sense we have a need in our life for God and for spiritual things. Certainly not for this Jesus who draws this line in the sand. And it makes it very hard for somebody who has all of their physical and material needs met to sense their spiritual need. That's why you and I need to remain humble each moment of each day because it's very difficult when wealth comes your way to be spiritually sensitive. It truly is, which is why, by the way, again, for another sermon, God wants us to give it away. Why he wants us to release it and to be generous because it helps us spiritually. Simply see, because we're going to move on here right now, that what Jesus said caused people a lot of alarm and it caused them to intensely dislike him. You and I love it. Not everybody does. And then notice that Jesus, and we're going to go through this one very quickly, says that people hate him because of what he did. Not just what he said, but because of what he did. He says in verse 24, something very similar to verse 22, he says, if I have not done the works among them that I did, then again, they wouldn't realize their sin of rejecting me, but I did do these works, and so now they hate me. And you're saying, what works did he do? Healings, miracles, atonement for our sin. I love this one, ushering in an age of grace. Which, by the way, even bothers a lot of Christians. I spend much of my time arguing with legalistic Christians who are in love with the law and with rules and with a black and white faith. And they fail to see what Jesus really ushered in. Not that the law is abolished, it's now fulfilled in Jesus. And an age of grace and forgiveness and atonement is now upon us. Again, it's good news But if you're a rigid personality that wants everything in place and wants everybody in their place, then Jesus, I can tell you right now, isn't really the guy for you. Because Jesus came here, as we're going to see, to love us and to bring us back to God. Hopefully you can now see the richness as well as the profundity of how Jesus lays this out. Hatred is real. He's saying there is this intense dislike, this aversion towards that is now directed at Jesus, then and now. Why? Because what he said, though truthful and from God, was and is incendiary, as it draws a spiritual line in the sand. As Jesus would go on to conclude, he once said, he who is not with me is against me. And what he did, though finally and fully bringing us to God, if it's not something you're willing to own and receive, your sin and his atonement, man, It gets in your way and it rains on your self-satisfied, this is my life parade. And the point is, and some of you know this, but some of you have been resisting this. And today is the day that I hope you stop resisting this. And that is that with Jesus, there really isn't a lot of middle ground. Have you ever found that? I mean, we live in a world today that wants to be so soft and, 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 and embracing of everybody, and, and, and there's some good in that. But, but when it comes to Jesus, he, he didn't ask us to try to have everybody embrace him. He, he didn't say, pull me to the middle and, and, and try to soften what I said so that it can fit everybody's life. That is not what Jesus intended. 
Jesus is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is God come to earth. And he said, I come on my terms and I teach you and I love you on my terms. And I ask you to embrace me as I am. And for those of us that have done it, it's amazing news. And for those that don't, it kind of rains on their parade. I love how C.S. Lewis said it so well back in the middle of the last century to an increasingly skeptical European culture at that time. And he wrote about Jesus. And, and, you know, many people back then were trying to soften Jesus and make him into kind of a middle-of-the-road great teacher. And look at what he says. This is a great quote. Lewis says, I'm, says, I'm trying to prevent here anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And that is that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or, act, or, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. He says either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And he's exactly right. Jesus came and drew a line in the sand because he loves us so much and wants us to be redeemed from our sin and he calls us to follow him, the only one who can save us. And back then and even today, you guys have to hear this, there was and is this intense dislike, this aversion and hostility toward Jesus precisely of what he said and did. And what you also don't want to miss today is how, as Jesus lays all this out, he clearly involves you and me, you and me, as his followers in this equation. Verse 18 truly becomes the summary point where Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Why? Because of his tie to the Father, and we're tied to him. And when all that is tied together and hate comes Jesus' way, it is going to bleed into you and I. I know we don't like to hear this. I know that it's a message that many of you don't like in our 21st century Scottsdale or Phoenix living. But I'm telling you, this world is not our home. We're only passing through. And there's going to be times where as a follower of him, things get really difficult as culture goes crazy and doesn't embrace the Jesus that you embrace. Now, at this point in our discussion, I want to wrap up. We've got about 16, 17 minutes left by giving you three rather straightforward and practical take-home points. These comprise the implications of Jesus' words here as we apply them to our own life. These are kind of the so what's of what Jesus has just said. They're not on your outline because I wanted to put that chart on there instead, but you might want to write these down. And I'll just warn you, they are written in Jamie ease. They are not grammatically correct. I want you just to, to sort of hear my voice in these things because I'm going to say them very candidly and very straightforward so that you and I can apply this stuff from Jesus really well well in our lives. So here's the first one, and that is make sure that they hate you because of Jesus and not your own obnoxiousness. <laughs> Amen? 
I, I cannot tell you how many times in 38 years of being a Christian, I, I've run into Christians that are just obnoxious and they're in your face and they're always yelling at you, like I am right now, and, and, and they're doing those things and, and then people don't like them and what do they do? You've seen this a thousand times. They hide behind Jesus. And they sit there and go, well, I'm being persecuted because of Jesus. And I think to myself, no, you're being persecuted because you're an idiot. You're being persecuted because you're obnoxious. You're being persecuted because the fallen part of your personality, which God loves and redeemed, it just hasn't been fully redeemed, is what's getting in the way right now. And my simple point is maybe we should give some attention at times to the fallen parts of our personality and ask ourselves, are we being disliked Do people have an aversion toward us right now because of some fallen part of us or because we're attached to Jesus? I think it's a really good distinction for us to make. Jesus makes it. Look at how he says it here in verses 19b and 20. He says, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, meaning your attachment to him, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. See the attachment there? So Jesus is basically saying, if they're going to persecute you, have it be because of me, not because of this fallen part of your personality that quite frankly borders on obnoxiousness. You know, I had to learn this lesson uh, very early on as a Christian. Some of you look at me now and go, man, this kind of applies to you now. I'm a lot better than I used to be. Uh, 38 years ago when I got saved, I was just entering into college. And I've told you guys this before. When I got saved, man, I got to tell you, it was like Paul on the road to Damascus. I I never went to church much. I, I was living a very decadent life. And when the good news of the gospel came my way, it was like whack. And I just did a 180. And, and, and for good or for bad, I was early on in college, I'd already joined a, a very decadent fraternity, and I, and I felt, well, I'm not going to quit the fraternity, I'm just going to save all of them. <laughs> and so I'm a Sigma Chi, for any of you who care, and, 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 and in my fraternity back there in college, man, I, I was so on fire in a good way, but I was also very young and immature that every single conversation I had, everyone, I would turn somehow to the Lord. And I was tactless about it. I mean, I'd be talking to someone like Bill, and, you know, the conversation would be about normal stuff. And I'd say, Bill, come on, how many walls are in this room? He'd say four. I'd say, that reminds me of four spiritual laws, law number one. (laughs) And if that didn't work, I'd say, hey, Bill, are you a believer in Jesus? Well, okay, you're not. Hell is a long time to burn. Let's talk about that. And, and I would just, man, I would just go right for the jugular on everybody. And again, I was immature and I was passionate, but I was also pretty messed up with a lot of father wounds and hadn't processed any of that yet. True story, one day I was sitting at dinner with my fraternity brothers and one of the older guys, Mike, said to me, he was kind of frustrated, he said, man, do you ever talk about anything other than God? And I said, is there anything else? And he sort of shook his head, and after dinner, they grabbed me physically, and they took me upstairs in the fraternity. They didn't beat me or anything like that, but they locked me in a room for like three hours, and I was pounding on the door, you know, saying, let me out. True story. And they were saying, we're not letting you out. We need some peace, and they locked me in this room for like three hours, and I was pretty upset, 
And, and when they finally let me out, I ran to the dorms, you know, where I was staying at that time. I wasn't living in the fraternity house yet. And, uh, and, and, and I ran up to one of my, my Christian friends. I only had a couple. <laughs> and, and I ran up to one of them, and I knocked on his door, and I just started to, to just tear up as soon as I got to the door. And I looked at him and said, I was just persecuted. And, and, and I told him the whole story of what had happened. And I, his name was David, David Jackson. He was so gentle with me. He sort of sat down. And he said, well, you know, we need to make a distinction right now between, you know, what you're doing with your fraternity and what real persecution is because of Jesus. He said, could it be that, that, that they're persecuting you because of the way that you're going about this? And of course, all this was new to me. I had no clue what he's talking about. And over the next few years... As a young man, I started making a distinction between the fallen parts of my personality that aren't going to help the cause and the Jesus who does live in me and has saved me. And for the last 35 years, my prayer every day has been, Lord, may they see Jesus in me, not the fallen parts of me. I, I take this very seriously. I joke that I'm better now than I was back then, and obviously I am, but but it wouldn't take too much imagination for any of you to know that there are plenty of days where I still mess that up. And yet one of the things I do, and I would challenge you to do this, is every night before I go to bed, every night, I audit all of my conversations of the day. That's what I think about before bed. Not in some shameful way, but I just go through my mental Rolodex of all the conversations I have, and I kind of audit them, and I ask God, was he honored in that? Did I say anything that would have been sinful or wrong or what have you? And again, it's not a shame-based thing. It's just to, to sharpen my relationships. And there's some times where I go, praise God, that was a great one. And other times I cringe. I go, ooh, I probably shouldn't have said that. And I'll confess it to God, or maybe even other times in the morning, I'll send somebody an email and say, you know, we were talking yesterday, and I, I probably came on a little bit too strong there. I didn't say that right. Why do I do that? Because I don't want people to, to be blocked or stumble over my fallen personality. I want them, if they stumble over anything, to stumble over Jesus. And that's Jesus' whole point here. So, fun-loving way, if you tend to be an obnoxious personality, as I can sometime, then this one's for you. Now, let me give you the second implication, because we're going to like totally go to the other extreme right now in the second application of this, and this is for those of you on the other extreme, and it's this, that if you find the world loving you, if you find yourself fitting in just fine, worry. That would have been a great place for an amen. So let's take another run at that. If you find the world loving you, if you find yourself fitting in just fine, worry. Some of you don't understand this. What do you mean? Look at what Jesus said. This was really cool. Jesus said in John 15 verses 19a, he said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. See, here's my problem today is that there are some of us who are followers of Jesus and we live in this wonderful, wonderful town, Scottsdale or Phoenix, wherever you live. It's just a great place to live, especially this time of year. And, and, and we fit in so well, just fine, and everybody loves us. And my point is, if I was in your shoes and that happened to me, I'd be just a little bit concerned. And the reason is, is because Jesus already told us that there will be times that people hate us because of him. And if everybody around you thinks you're just the most wonderful person, they love you to death, I just wonder how much you're penetrating the world around you, or maybe you're penetrating it, how honest you are with people about where your heart really is 
in this crazy upside down culture of ours. Again, I'm not asking you to go out and be obnoxious. My guess is that's not what your personality is if everybody thinks you're just the most wonderful person in the world. My, my point is, is that maybe, maybe you are a bit too comfortable in this world and maybe you need to start understanding that life is not about settling in It's about getting through this fallen world of ours as strangers and aliens, as the Bible says, and even to allow yourself to stand out. It's not about settling in. As Christians, it's about standing out. And you go, where's that in the Bible? Man, that's all over the place. We are called to be what? Salt and light. And last I looked, light stands out in the darkness. And salt stands out among the seasonings that we can use. And that's what we're called to be. That when we enter into a situation, man, there's some light that shines through you and I. And there's a little bit of salt that's put on there. And people go, something something tastes different here. Something looks a little bit different here. Because Jeff is in the room. Because Rick is in the room. Because Jamie's in the room. And again, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying go in and be obnoxious. You go in walking with Jesus and you go in representing him. And and my point is, is that if they never, ever, ever know who you are or what you're about, I'm not sure you're allowing yourself, ready for this, to be tied to him as he wants you to. Because what Jesus says is if they hated him, they're going to hate you. And and if the world never, ever has any dislike of you, I, I wonder I wonder what's going on in your life. So if that fits for you, then wear it. And then a final implication of Jesus' teaching on all of this, and this one wraps it up so nicely, and it's the most important of them all. And it's one that I'm so disappointed in Christians today. You'll hear why in a minute. But I have great hope for Scottsdale Bible Church because the Bible's so clear on this, and it's this. And that is as they hate you, say the word with me, love. One of the biggest misnomers of the Christian church today in our 21st century decadent culture is that as they hate, as they put up a fight, our biggest job is to fight back. Our biggest job is to put up our fists and our biggest job is to go at them and and to fight the good fight. The only problem is when the Bible says fight the good fight, that's not what it's talking about. It's to fight the good fight of faith. Again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't vote. I'm not saying that we we shouldn't stand up for our values. You guys know me. I believe we should do all of that. But the tone and tenor of how we do that, the Bible says, must, must be love. And that if anything coming out of you is anything less than love, if it mirrors at all the hate that is coming at you, man, you're just like the world. Because Jesus is followers. What did Jesus say when Peter cut off the ear of the centurion? He said, my followers do not fight. My followers fight the battle of love. And he said, love at the end of the day is going to win the day. Jesus couldn't be more clear on this. Some of you, again, don't like this because you've bought into a, a lie in our culture today that says that we should be completely combative with those that come at us. No, Jesus said this. He said, you heard it was said that you should love your enemy and hate, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, it was never said that in the Old Testament. That's what the Pharisees were saying. You should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And then his, and then his argument here is just, I, I love it. He says, for if you love those who love you, 
What reward do you have? Tax collectors do that. He says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anybody else would do? Even the Gentiles do that. He basically is saying, you know, that if you're nice to those who are nice to you, big whip. The world does that. He's saying, you're above that. You're the kind of person when the world comes at you, yes, you have an answer for why you believe and you have a strong apologetic and you're going to stand up for your values, all of that. But you don't come back at them with hate. You come back at them with every bit of love the Holy Spirit can muster up in you because love covers over a multitude of sins. A kind answer, it turns away wrath and it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. That's what the Lord has taught us. In fact, very, very quickly, uh, I, I had so much fun this week in my study. I looked up every occurrence of the word hate in the Bible. It's about 140 of them. And uh, I came up with this really quick, down and dirty little primer on hate, uh, on what the Bible says about hate. This is kind of instructive. It tells us that God loves everyone he has created, John 3.16. Then it tells us that he hates, however, sinful and rebellious actions or acts. Deuteronomy 12.31, he hates the things that the other nations do as they bow to other idols. So he hates what they do. And then Proverbs 6, boy, if you ever read Proverbs 6, it's really hard hitting. Proverbs 6, uh, it says, six things I hate, seven things that are an abomination. And then it just goes on to list all these actions that you and I would also hate. Things like lying and stealing and things like that. God said he hates those things. So he loves everybody, hates what they do. And then the Bible says we should hate what God hates. Proverbs 8, 13, that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So again, we should hate and join God in that. And then, however, lastly, we're commanded to love all people. Luke 6, 27. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. So, so how do you add all that up? You know, there's a phrase we used to use that I don't hear used anymore because people thought it was too simple and trite, but I think it's really good theology. And, and the phrase is this, that we love the sinner, but we hate the sin. I don't know why that, that fell out of, out, out of popularity because it, it really is amazing theology. It, it, it'll steer you right. It's okay to watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, or, or read the Arizona Republic, or wherever you get your news, and, and to be bothered by all the crud going on around you, and to hate this stuff that you see. It's okay to, to feel that. As I said earlier, all of us feel hate, but here's where it gets, we have to be careful. If all of a sudden we attach that to the people doing it, and then cross the bridge and say, and I hate that person, we have entered into grievous sin that is very un-Jesus-like. Because Jesus made a distinction between Matthew's sin and the person who was the tax collector at the tax collector's booth. He made a distinction between the woman who'd been married more times than Elizabeth Taylor at the well and the woman who was made in God's image who he would speak uh, truth and spirit to. Do you see that? And we need more Christians like that today. We need more Christians that, that say it's okay to, to have my values and be mad at the things going on in the culture around me, but I'm, in, but I'm never going to take that out on you. I'm never going to take it out on you. I, I'm never going to hate you because you're made in the image of God and I love you. Imagine if every Christian thought like that. Somebody came up to me last night. I got 28 seconds left, so this is my last word. And I didn't even think of this. Some came to me last night and said, this was a good message for the midterm elections. 
And, and honestly, I mean, I was glued to the news Tuesday night, but I, I, Al, I never even thought of that. And then I thought, it is a really good message for the midterm elections because some of you are miffed. Some of you are watching all this right now and, and you have very high standards for this. I get it. I join you in some, if not all of it, but let's not hate. Let's leave that one to the world. You and I are called to be salt and light. Man, we're called to love people to the, into the kingdom around us. And so let's do a good job of that and let's see what God does with that because that's what he's done for you, by the way. He loves you and aren't you glad he does? God, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for all that you've given to us in Jesus. And Lord, I just scratched the surface of his words today. And so I pray, God, that as we chew on these for our own lives, as we think about this topic of hate, and even as maybe some of us are going through this right now in our relationships, I pray, God, that you would help us to be so close to Jesus that if they hate us, it's because of him. I pray, God, that when we walk into a room, we'd be the type of people that exude Jesus and that they might see him in us. And I pray, God, that no matter what comes our way, we won't follow the pattern of the world. We'll follow the pattern of your son and we will love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.